Hello, and welcome to GovConnect, where we sit down with local government innovation experts to bring you insightful stories and advice on technology, best practices, and the latest trends. And here's our host, Andrew Kirk. Hello, I'm Andrew K. Kirk, and today I'm talking with Dan Heimowitz, the director of the Mayor's Office of Innovation at the City of Baltimore, Maryland. As our listeners hopefully know, our goal with the GovConnect podcast is to speak with as many interesting and diverse chief innovation officers, chief information officers, and IT leaders in order to learn about their rapidly changing roles in local government. Today, Dan and I are going to speak about how you structure an innovation team, challenges within that role, and how his experience working on the front lines of the Ebola outbreak has shaped where he's at today. Dan, welcome to GovConnect. Andrew, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So we've touched on it a little bit, but could you take us through your career and kind of professional background and how you got into the chief innovation officer role that you're in today? Uh, sure. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a sort of a, a little bit of a winding path, or not the most not the most linear uh, path. But uh, so I went to grad school uh, uh, to do a master's of public policy, and it was there that I was. I was really in, became interested in, in international development work. Um, I guess some people sort of call it sort of international aid work. Um, uh, so I ended up a- after grad school getting a, a fellowship, which was a pretty cool opportunity um, to work um, with the, the government of, of Liberia. So um, this was basically uh, a way to bring young professionals um, both Liberians, but also some some people who are from the U.S. to work as special assistants to senior Liberian government officials. Um, and it was a really exciting time in in Liberia. So pretty important context. So you had uh, the first female elected head head of state in Africa, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Um, she later would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize and, and many other sort of global accolades. But it was really seen as a really exciting potential turnaround opportunity for Liberia, which had just come out of 14 years of civil conflict. I got to work for what ended up being three and a half years um, inside the Liberian government. So I ended up working as a special assistant to one of President Sirleaf's um, main advisors. Um, and this person's role was basically as a sort of interface with a lot of the international donors that were working in the country. So whether that be the U.S. Agency for International Development or the World Bank um, or, or some of the other international aid, aid agencies. And how do you kind of get those folks to um, support um, the, the government's development agenda or the, the president's development agenda? So I, I, I worked there and I ended up staying on what was supposed to be a year, year-long fellowship, staying on in a role um, where I helped to, to set up this, this new office, which was called the Philanthropy Secretariat which was a way of specifically engaging foundations. So the government was well set up to deal with international um, donors, again, like key big institutions like the UK's main agency, or again, the US aid agency. What they weren't really set up for was how you deal with um, foundations, which operate a bit differently. So there was a need or an opportunity to kind of set up an office that just dealt with foundations like the Gates Foundation and, and others that were trying to do work in the country. So I helped to set up that office. Um, again, this was an office within the Liberian president's office, um, got to set up a team and help kind of begin to work with some of those foundations to make sure that some of the work they were doing was well aligned with government programs. And that, for example, you didn't have a foundation coming in and 
you know, let's say running off and, and, and doing a project on its own when it could have been collaborating, let's say, with other organizations that were already doing similar things. So that was my, that was my work in Liberia. I then um, took a job with um, Tony Blair's foundation, the organization actually works in a pretty similar way to the fellowship I was doing. So basically, they provide support to governments, um, particularly presidencies, um, primarily, though not exclusively in Africa, to help set up systems to help government kind of drive implementations of, of, the, of, of the president's priority programs. Um, it's really just about how do you help government to be, to be more to be more effective. Um, so that's again, and the foundation primarily worked by embedding advisors within um, governments in Africa, including the Liberian government. Um, so in that work, I was both based in London, so overseeing some of the, the those projects, um, but also then ended up going to Liberia um, during the Ebola outbreak to work with the Liberian government to support the government's response to the Ebola epidemic in late 2014 and early 2015. So that was my Tony Blair Foundation work. Um, and I was really excited for this, this uh, eventual opportunity that, that brought me to, to Baltimore, which was first time I had actually worked in domestic or, or local government. But, but I really, I think I, I missed in some ways from um, the work I was doing with the, the Tony Blair Foundation was uh, where I was primarily based first in London, but then in Washington was I, I felt there was something missing in terms of being far away from the work and the places that I was really interested in supporting, you know, programs and reforms in meaning. So if you're based in DC, but you're supporting a program, let's say in, you know, Liberia or, or Ghana, you know, you're really not in those places. You don't really understand what's happening on the ground. And so you're sort of, you're always a couple steps away from what's actually happening in the programs you're trying to support. Well, speaking of working on big projects, I feel pretty confident that I can say you're probably our first guest on the show who's had previous experience working on a task force that managed an Ebola outbreak response. First of all, what, what was that like and secondarily, how did the lessons learned on the front line apply to the work you're doing today? Yeah. So, so I mean, when people hear the word Ebola, you usually often get a, get a response. <laughs> you know, obviously, during the, the outbreak of 2014 uh, and 2015 in West Africa, it was, um, uh, you know, it was the biggest Ebola outbreak ever. And it was a really scary time. In terms of what it was like, just to emphasize, I was not doing, and I always tell people this, I, I was not doing actual medical work. So the images that you see, if you're watching, sort of following the news of the of the Ebola outbreak at that time, or say the one in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now is you, you see folks in those yellow spacesuits, spacesuit looking things. And it's quite scary. But I, again, I wasn't, I never actually dealt with uh, individuals who had, you know, contracted Ebola. I was really doing government coordination work sitting in in offices and conference rooms trying to sort of organize the work from a government perspective. So the biggest thing is it wasn't as scary as it sounds. It was, however, definitely the most intense professional experience of my life. It was incredibly emotional. Um, it is an absolutely frightening disease and and just so devastating for the countries that were affected by it. And it was it, it I've never worked in an environment where you know, you had, you're sitting in meetings where people are, you know, sometimes literally, 
you know, yelling at each other at times because it's that intense, you know, the decisions you're discussing. So it wasn't dangerous, at least the work I was doing. Plenty of people were doing the, the front line, the super front lines, very, very dangerous work, but it was incredibly, incredibly emotional and intense. I can imagine that you weren't on the front line yet. It probably had a weight that most of us can't imagine. As much as I like to think my work in software and building apps and helping local government really has an impact, the weight of it can't really compare to something on that scale. So that's certainly a pretty interesting life experience that you were able to go through. I think it was pretty interesting. And there are, I think, a lot of interesting kind of things I I still think about. So first of all, I think one thing about the Ebola response was it it kind of looked on the surface like a medical or solely in a medical emergency. And of course there were, you know, it was, it was indeed that, but, but the sort of challenges to the challenge from like the perspective of the Liberian government responding to it was really kind of more about systems and, and just management um, at some point. So, I mean, at some point, you know, there, there was actually plenty of resources in terms of financial support, especially from outside donors in terms of the numbers of doctors that you had, the the number of, um, field workers who were following up on cases, you actually had plenty of people, but it was really just the, the challenge of coordination that was the biggest thing. So I think there's, I think there was something there about kind of not assuming that the sort of dimensions of a problem on its surface are exactly what, what they're going to be when you kind of get into really understanding it. Um, another one that I always think about, and I think about weekly is, I, I th- one thing that was, was interesting during the, the, the Ebola epidemic, which was that you know, we had seen Ebola, meaning the world had seen Ebola outbreaks before um, in, in other countries, though not by far nothing even close to as big as the, the, the West African epidemic at that time. Um, and so you had a lot of experts who had worked on those previous Ebola epidemics coming in and advising the Ebola responders in, in West Africa. And I think that was helpful. But at the same time, I think there was a tendency to always sort of assume that the dimensions of the, the issue in, you know, from, from Uganda or wherever else that, that that person had worked were always exactly the same. Um, so for example, a key difference in, in Liberia was that um, this was the first time that an Ebola outbreak had reached an urban area. And one of the ways that you respond to an Ebola epidemic in when it's in a rural or, or an area where a lot of, where not as many people live is that, you know, you, you just try, you, you basically try to isolate the individuals who have uh, been exposed to the disease so that it doesn't spread. In an urban environment, that's much harder to do. And so the strategies you need to use to to deal with that are different. And I felt there was a lot of times when sort of the lessons from the other places were brought in as if they were templates for how you how you deal with things. But in fact, the, you know, you needed something, you actually needed something new. Um, so I think I've become a cautious appreciator of best practices and that's something, you know, we, you know, we all around the world, we're, you know, people look around the world for, for lessons learned, and that's absolutely something we should be doing, but sort of applying those lessons and those programs from, you know, place X to, you know, place Y in the right way needs to be done correctly. You need to think about some of the differences and make sure it fits the context. It may sound like an obvious thing, but I was struck by how often during Ebola, some of the old lessons didn't actually apply in the ways you might've thought. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about the innovation team within the city and how you're organized in terms of your own department and then how you interact with the departments throughout the city. 
Sure. We're a team of four full-time members plus a couple of, of, of fellows. I'll talk about sort of the, the team's composition of the, of the team in a, in, a, in a moment. We're a small team within, within City Hall. Uh, we, we report to the, the mayor. And again, we're supported by, uh, by Bloomberg Philanthropies in terms of you know, providing some, some tools and, and advisory support in terms of how we operate. We tend to focus on big city challenges that the mayor sets out for us. So um, our first issue that we've, we've worked on in, in Baltimore has been the issue of police recruitment and hiring. The Baltimore Police Department is understaffed um, and also um, really seeking to overhaul and, and reform how it, how it selects new officers to join, to join the department. But the point is, we, 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 the team tends to really focus in on, on big, big challenges laid out by, laid, laid out by the mayor. Um, so in terms of the composition of the team, there's uh, myself, I'm the director. We have a, a program manager and we have a data scientist. That's not something that every uh, innovation team has, but, but usually there's a, a data, uh, either scientist or analyst on, on most, um, most innovation teams. Uh, and then in addition, we have a design strategist. And what that means is someone who's trained in human-centered design. So how are we taking in the views of uh, residents in creative ways into the policy development process um, in, in, in new ways. Those are the two technical disciplines. So data, quantitative data and, and human-centered design are kind of the key technical pillars uh, for, for how our team works. Um, the other thing I'll say is that we, you know, when we're working on a problem, whether that be police recruitment and, or, and hiring or our uh, a project we're now beginning to work on, which is the issue of uh, vacant housing in uh, so-called middle neighborhoods in, in Baltimore. We spend a lot of time creating sort of a, a deep understanding of the problem as we're beginning to shape, hopefully, creative solutions to, to addressing those, those issues. So before we kind of start innovating, so to speak, we're, we're, we're trying to really deeply understand the issues we're working on first. And that's sort of a, a, one of the key pieces of the model that, that we're meant to, meant to apply. As you mentioned, the mayor gave your team its first assignment figure out how to recruit more police officers and retain them. In a previous episode of GovConnect, we actually spoke with Amanda Daffalos, who's the team inside the city of Los Angeles. They're also tackling officer recruitment. What makes this problem difficult and why are innovation teams well suited to tackle that problem? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. So first of all, this police recruitment and hiring is is a nationwide challenge. It's not unique to LA or to Baltimore. Um, so, so just to say, it is something that a lot of cities uh, and a lot of urban police forces around the country are, are are grappling with. There's a number of different reasons behind that, and, and some of them are are national, and then there's some you know additional probably local contextual reasons um, you know here in Baltimore. But but that you know some of the national ones is I think there's been uh, a lot of high-profile police-related incidents in recent years, I think, that have really shined, uh, uh, in some ways, a very critical lens on on policing as a profession. And I think many police departments have seen that you're having potential applicants. You may be questioned whether that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a career path that they want to enter into. At least that's for some departments, that's been the case. I think there's also um, generational things about how Younger people think about their careers. I think in the past, the thought of a career in one institution, one police department, and then a chance to retire and have ongoing benefits from that 
from that career was was sort of a a model that that or a template that that worked for people. In 2019, that's not as much the case. I don't think uh, as many people see their career as being about again one employer for a, a 20 or 25 year period. So the whole model of how you're bringing in new people needs to change, and how you're talking about this this career opportunity to potential applicants needs to change. So those are a couple of the issues that have that have made it a challenge for some cities. Um, I think what's really interesting and why innovation teams are pretty well suited to the problem is. To be frank, it's because it's a new type of problem in the sense that I think 10 years ago, it wasn't so much seen as this big challenge or nationwide challenge that police departments were struggling to hire. It's almost, it's a new thing that requires kind of a new way of understanding the issues and and, and also new ways of of being responsive to those, those challenges. It's not an area... Uh, where there's a there's necessarily a group of, of of distinguished experts out there in the art of police recruitment and hiring. It's something that police agencies have obviously always done, but there but there hasn't necessarily been deep codification of best practices over that time. So because it's a newer issue, it feels like actually a pretty ripe area for some new thinking. That's why I think uh, that's one or one of the reasons I think that innovation teams are pretty well suited to to begin working on these types of issues. Um, and it's been great to work with um, Amanda's team in LA to both learn from what, they, what they've done working with the LAPD, but also to learn what the LAPD has done and some of the strategies they've used to, you know, on, on recruitment, some of which we've actually piloted here, here in Baltimore. Besides police recruitment efforts, what are some of the other problems and opportunities that you want to tackle within the city of Baltimore? The big issue we're really excited to begin working on now is this issue of vacant housing in Baltimore. And we're specifically looking at this issue in so-called middle neighborhoods in the city. So what that means are, are areas of the city that are not necessarily the most distressed or the most wealthy areas of the city. These are, I think, in many ways, sort of key tipping point areas for a city like Baltimore, where um, how they grow and develop or, or not or really, in many ways, will you know, can shape the sort of future of what the city looks like. In terms of vacant houses, um, about one third of the city's vacants are in these so-called middle neighborhood areas. And as we've begun to work with the Department of Housing and Community Development here in Baltimore on this issue, one of the reasons they they think that our team can can potentially be useful on this is, first of all, they think there's less of a clear understanding of where uninhabited houses are in these neighborhoods compared to other areas of the city. And so therefore, there's even a understanding the, the picture throughout Baltimore uh, that, that can be helpful. And then second, uh, that there's probably more space for, for innovation in how the city responds to the issue of, of either preventing or addressing current vacants in, in these neighborhoods um, or the, these types of neighborhoods, middle neighborhoods. So it, we, we're really excited about it because we think it's both a really critical issue for the city and also one we hope we've identified an important subset of, of the challenge where our team can potentially be useful in, in supporting new strategies. So certainly a wealth of things for you to tackle just within the city. Taking a step back and thinking about chief innovation officers, pretty new position, but certainly becoming more and more attractive and we're seeing more and smaller municipalities adding that. Thinking kind of broadly, what are the biggest challenges you see 
facing chief innovation officers today? I think the big one is thinking about spreading a culture of innovation throughout government. This kind of sounds like a, a, some buzzwords, but I think it's a really important point. My team, the, the innovation team in Baltimore, gets to focus on, on some pretty big, meaty challenges. But that takes up a lot of our time and bandwidth, which is, which is really critical. And I think the problems we're working on are, are, are absolutely you know, the right ones and, and critical for the city. But at the same time, um, there's questions about how do you spread smart ways of, of innovating throughout government? How do you mainstream it, I guess you, you, you might say, to, to other parts of um, other, other parts or throughout city government? Because um, there's so many issues that we won't have the chance to work on directly. That's a, I think that's a that's a really important and in some ways trickier question. Um, and I and I know other innovation teams and or or offices in, in other cities are thinking about how to go about that. And there's some interesting ways of approaching it. But I think there's really you know and and you can think of some answers like providing trainings on key kind of facets of how you do smart innovation. There's um, my team has recently started offering uh, quote unquote office hours to other city agencies. So basically they can come in at, with a problem that they're thinking about and my team uh, will help think through and possibly provide some support to them in, in, in kind of addressing that issue. So that's, that's a way to begin spreading out and, and engaging with a wider set of, of key issues in the city. But I do think it's an interesting challenge. You know, when you have a, a dedicated team like ours for innovation how do you how do you spread ourselves out a bit a bit more i think is a really interesting challenge and i know something that a lot of other innovation teams talk about and think about great well on that note let's change to what we call our rapid three questions what type of phone do you use and what's your favorite personal mobile app a boring answer i have an iphone um not not uh, not alone on that one uh and i'll give a plug to an app called pocket which is a way to basically save news articles so you can read them offline. To be fair, here in, in Baltimore, I don't use it as much, but um, let's say living in a, a place like New York City where you're um, some, sometimes cutting in and out of having cell service and access to data, it's a really useful way to make sure you can keep up on things you know, throughout you know, whether you're on or offline. So I, I, I'm a big fan. Two, what's one book you most recommend or give away to others? I really love the Robert Caro biographies of Lyndon Johnson. Um, and he, he's written now, I think he's working on the fifth one. So he's written a, basically a five part chronicle of Lyndon Johnson's life. And the, if you're going to choose one, I would say the passage of power, which is about when Lyndon Johnson became president in uh, 1963 after JFK was assassinated. And the reason I both think it's a great book, but also recommended is I think these books are probably the best study of politics and how politics work of anything I've, I've ever read. And I think in a lot of ways, more than kind of, you know, taking a quote unquote class on politics, you know, sort of getting into the really intricate details of how a masterful political uh, figure like Lyndon Johnson went about his his work, um, both before and when he became president, I think is really, really useful in understanding how government and politics works. Three, what's one tool, software, or even non-tech hack that you're using to improve your life? I have recently started using, I was kind of, this is a health one. It's an, it's an app called Aptive. 
and it's a workout app. And what's interesting about it is it's just audio. So you're not actually, and that, that's quite an interesting thing because when you think about it, like some of the, a lot of the, I think in some ways, fancier apps that are out there, you know, have a mix of audio and video and they show you what to do. But when you're kind of running around and doing different exercises, you don't actually have, it can be a little intrusive or distracting to have to like look at the screen throughout, you know, while you're working out. So I found it really useful just when you have the trainer the audio trainer basically describing it just really clearly as you're doing it um, to be a really strangely helpful way to, to actually, you know, to, to work out in new and, and, and good ways. So it's kind of funny that actually like not having video, just audio is to me better than the, having the full thing. So there's a, there's a, there's a quirky one for you. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining today. Please let our listeners know where they can find out more information and connect with you online. Great. I'll point people to our, our innovation team website, baltimoreinnovates.com. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter as well as the, uh, the innovation team on, on Twitter as well. We will make sure we put those links online and in our show notes. And if you, the listeners, want to learn more about how local governments are using our CRM to manage resident interactions, please visit us at rocksolid.com. If you have any feedback about the show, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me an email, A Kirk, that's A K I R K at rocksolid.com, or on Twitter at Andrew K Kirk. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Please subscribe to GovConnect through your favorite podcast service and leave us a review. It greatly helps us to spread the word that GovConnect is the podcast for local government innovation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to GovConnect. Please make sure you subscribe. And don't forget, we need you to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best in local government innovation.